Hi friends, I'm Olivia. And I'm Katie. And we are Podcast by Proxy. Welcome. We're live on our two-year anniversary. We did it. Welcome back, everybody. Sorry it's late, but worth it to be late, I think. Eek. Okay, now my mic is recording. We're live. We're live again. On a two-year anniversary again. (laughs) So excited to be here. Sorry it's a bit late, but I think it's worth it. We get to be live with you on our actual anniversary. And we have something really fun today. It's definitely different from a normal episode, which I know I say it's that all the time. It's a way back machine again. I was going to say, I know I say that all the time, but this one is actually <laughs> different. There's not even really any murder, so to speak, in this episode. Um, but we're going to do like a fun historical Canadian episode. I'm for, excited. Like, our Christmas, New Year's anniversary episode. Um Katie's fiance Simon actually requested this. We were on the phone. Katie and I were on the phone, not me and Simon. Uh, <laughs> hey boy, what's going on? Sup, Simon? Um, no, we were Sime. on the phone, and I was saying I needed a case suggestion. I wanted something to start researching, and then all of a sudden, Simon just started sending me links on Facebook Messenger, and I was like, like what no is- context, what and hell? like yeah. literally minutes later. So you're like, what is? Why is he messaging? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it was like no context, no like here's an idea, just a bunch of links. Um, and then he said that Katie wouldn't cover it. So here we are. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and then I think I told you this already, but no one else would know about how afterwards he slyly walked by and went, next time I have a case suggestion, I'll just send it to Olivia. Yeah, that <gasps> is uh... okay, sassy. But uh, that's what we're doing today. So we're heading to Tofino, British Columbia. I was actually just there. I swam in the ocean in the middle of December in Tofino. Waves Um, crashing. It was cold, though. Oh, yeah. But wind. I feel like it actually did do something good for me. Like for your soul or like your sinuses? No, like my nervous system. Oh. My nervous system as a whole is like quite sensitive like I'm only supposed to have one coffee a day and yada 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 like you know this is my therapist prescribed that you know my nervous system's out of control which contributes to me being highly anxious about things that I don't need to be highly anxious about Um, I cried last night for no reason it's fine yeah it's been really bad lately and I I don't know why like my life is so great um (laughs) not to like toot my own horn or anything but you know I I said this to someone the other day I have so much to be thankful for and happy about I don't know why I feel this way I've just been so highly like on edge and anxious anyway long story short uh we jumped in the ocean for my friend's 30th birthday in Tofino and I've heard of the benefits of doing this, and I really was just like, I heard the idea, and I was like, oh, we're definitely doing that. And once I can, once I commit to something, it's happening. So we did that. That is true. My nervous system has genuinely felt better. Oh, without a doubt. Like I, although it's not cold, I like to go to Float House, Mm -hmm. and I genuinely feel like I get all the benefits they say you're gonna get, even though some seem a little like woohooey. Right. I genuinely am like, no, my my body feels like quieter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So I'm considering jumping in the ocean once a month, every month in 2023 as kind of like a fun little cold plunge activity and hopefully to make my nervous system a little bit less anxious in 2023. I would love to just like feel (sighs) all the time, you know? So I was watching one of those things where it's like, you know, a BuzzFeed challenge for like 30 days, but it's not really a challenge. They're just like, we're just going to see if there's any improvement. And some people make the changes. I watched the one where the someone takes like a, you do like what's called a cold dunk every morning. So you just turn your shower to cold and you just go in it for 30 seconds and step mm-hmm. out and then you start your day. Yeah. And they said that their like productivity was higher. They were more mentally aware, more yeah. alert and stuff like that. And I was like, hmm. Yeah, there's like so real science idea. behind it. And I've always known that. I'm just like, I've never been inclined to throw myself into the ocean. Freezing cold water. That right. didn't sound like an enjoyable. But um, it was really phenomenal. Uh, the only thing I would suggest is like bringing socks and rum- warming your feet up right away <laughs> because my toes were like frozen, couldn't feel them, went through the whole painful thawing process. It was terrible. Um, so yeah, that was the only part that sucked, but... I used to do the polar bear swim when I was a kid, me and a few of my friends, so. I always chickened out, because they do really? one in Qualcomm, too, and they do one at my, the high school that I graduated from, when you graduate, they do, like, a polar bear grad swim. You I didn't, didn't do your polar grad? No, did not. Oh. No. So, but I did it now, so, if you do cold plunges, or you like that kind of stuff, <laughs> comment on this episode, let us know, does anyone want to jump in the ocean with me once a month for the whole year? Let a gal know. I don't know. I mean, if I'm in town when you do it, I'll do it with you. I'm not opposed to a cold dip. So fun. We could meet in the middle once a month and go for a dip. We could. We'd have to hang out before we do the dip, though. Otherwise, we would have, like, an hour drive to just see each other for five minutes and then be like, bye. (laughs) Yeah, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. That sounds less fun. That does sound less fun. Uh, But yeah, we made it to our two-year anniversary, which is incredible. Uh, So last year, after our one-year anniversary, I believe we did a case updates episode, like pretty close after. And then another thing that we did last year after our one-year anniversary was we did like a redo of a case that we've done previously. Yes. So I think we're going to kind of keep that going. Uh, Yeah, I think uh, last year we had, like, the first week of January was our update, so just after the new year, so we could get the full year update, and then, yeah, yeah, for January we really focused on two or three redos and some bonus. Yeah, so next week will be case updates, and then we might do a redo in January, and then you'll have some new stuff coming after that, but it's been... A really amazing two years. We have. Are we gonna throw up a little vote to see what we redo? Yeah, we can throw up a vote. Um, there's like two options because I I like to go back to like the very beginning because we've cut a lot of those episodes out. So like redoing those is kind of a priority. Um, so I'll like give you a vote between one or two basically. I think we can get into today's episode. We'll head on over to Tofino. Um. We are discussing the story of Cougar Annie, which is as wild as it sounds. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> he was asking me to cover this for so long. Yeah, well, here we go. We're giving it to you today, everybody. And Merry, I know nothing about it. Merry so freaking Christmas. This. Ada Annie Ray Arthur is a pioneering oh. legend on the west coast of Vancouver Island. She was named for her incredible aim and skill at shooting cougars. 
Cougar Annie lived and worked on her land at Boat Basin for almost 70 years. This is already a better story than I thought it was going to be. I don't know why. (laughs) You can actually still visit what's called Cougar Annie's Historic Garden by float plane or water taxi from Tofino, which I really, really, really want to do. And after I was researching this, I actually texted your fiance and was like, hey, so we have to go on a group trip. Uh, to Bow Basin. <laughs> this this episode has now turned into like an $1,000 trip. Let's go pack your bags. Oh so my God, we, it's beautiful. We will be doing that at some point And don't you worry, we'll definitely document it. But I want to go here so bad. I know. The land that Annie lived on has been maintained by a foundation dedicated to keeping its, like, iconic historic value in the world. Um, can I ask you a question? Because you might have just come across it in the way. It says you get to this by float plane, like you just mentioned. Do you know if it's near the hot springs? Because I've always wanted to go to the hot springs in Tofino, so I would love to be able to lump those together. It is. Near the hot springs. Yes! Yeah, and we'll go into, like... The area that we're in, um, the indigenous history of the area that we're in, like we're really okay. going to get in depth with this. But That's we'll beautiful. go all the way back to when Ada Annie was born. She was born Ada Annie Jordan on June 19th, 1888 in Sacramento, California to Margaret Elizabeth Coleman and George Jordan. Annie was the couple's second child However, she was the only one of their children to survive to adulthood. So, like, she was raised as an only child. Yeah. Her parents were both from the town of Hastings in East Sussex on the coast of England. However, they moved around a lot to follow her father, George, in his many adventurous career endeavors. This guy was, like, all over the map. I hear you, buddy. Her father, George, uh, (laughs) embarked in many careers over his life, including fruit farming, cattle ranching, furniture importing and exporting. And then he eventually went to vet school. But with all of these careers, he was moving them like all over the world. I took my vet assistant course and my mom and dad used to have like an antique business where they <laughs> bought and resold antiques and fixed them up and did stuff. So I'm really feeling a kinship, to, okay, here to these this family. It's a bit like, I was surprised though for the time period. I mean, this would have been like the late, late 1800s and they were traveling a lot. Like, obviously her parents were from England. She was born in California. Annie was, um... Well, then they went to the UK. They moved to California after she was born. So she was born in England. Yeah. Uh, no, sorry. She was born in no, California. No, she was born in the States. Sacramento. Oh, they moved after she was born in California back to England, then to then South... back. Then to South Africa. Oh, my gosh. They lived in, like, Johannesburg for a while, and then they moved to Canada where they finally settled down when Annie was in her teens. So, like, they were all over the place. I mean, I guess if he was building furniture, though, maybe he just, like, threw together a little wagon and they had a horse. Maybe they were just... Yeah. I, I mean, don't, I don't know. Maybe travel like... was really cheap back then because he was highly employable, right? So maybe it was just about where you could get onto a boat and trade a skill. Totally. It was just surprising. Like, I feel like it, it's, is. it would be rare now. 
to hear that somebody lived in California, England, South Africa, and Canada before their teens. Like, I think those the... are three weird places, too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, it's not like you moved around Europe, but, like, far around Europe or anything. You literally were like, hey, guys, do you want to go to a new continent? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, just, it was just surprising and, like, what a adventurous life you lived. Right. Uh, so while they were living in Johannesburg, South Africa, Annie took a real interest in gardening. And she was she was like a little kid and she went on to win a horticulture competition in South Africa. Her father also trained her in like really basic survival skills. And by the age of seven, she knew how to learn. Uh, she knew how to shoot a gun and she learned to trap when she was a teenager. Now. I have friends who hunt whose kids, like, learned how to shoot a gun when they were six years old. So Nine, yeah. That wasn't really, like, super shocking to me. However, it was said throughout the research that, like, George specifically really wanted Annie to be a boy and decided to raise her like that. So it was more of, like, a... Okay, I mean, I, I kind of get that, though. Like, my parents were divorced, and when I was at my dad's, like, we did... We worked on the car, we built birdhouses, we, like, played in the yard. Like, we did a lot of boy activities, so I get that. I was going to say, same, like, my dad's really, really into motorcycles and dirt bikes, and Well, like, Nick and you and your dad were, like, the boys. Well, he bought my brother a dirt bike when he was really little, and Nick fell off of it, like, once and never wanted anything to to do with it ever again. (laughs) And so I assumed a lot of those roles just because I wanted to. I wanted to learn how to dirt bike. I wanted to learn how to, like, tinker on the car with my dad. It wasn't because he wanted me to be a boy. I just enjoyed that Yeah, I guess that's me, too, because I'm, like, obsessed with my dad. But I think in this context, it was, like, said to be that he... I'm almost wondering or curious if the child that passed was a boy, and so Mm. her dad felt this kind of, like attachment to that right and like just wanted to raise a boy i don't know anyway it didn't seem like she had too bad too bad of a time though yeah when they arrived in canada the family first started in lloydminster alberta they then moved to winnipeg manitoba before settling in vancouver bc where george opened up a veterinary clinic again all over canada like all over the map Jeez, but, okay. like, fair that you didn't like Winnipeg and wanted to come to Vancouver. I agree. Fair, fair, I'm fair. also watching Alone right now, and there's a lot of hunting and snaring and trapping, and I give credit to these people because that is hard. Yeah. It is mm-hmm. hard freaking work. Yeah. Annie was helping her father run his vet business in Vancouver when she met her first husband, William Ray Arthur, who went by Willie. The couple got married on September 4th, 1909, uh, with Annie becoming Ada Annie Ray Arthur. When they got married, Willie was 26 and Annie was 21. Prior to their marriage, Willie had struggled with an addiction to alcohol and opium. After they got married, Willie fell back into the temptations that existed at the time in Chinatown, because remember they're in Vancouver... And his addiction got really out of control. Um, So Annie actually went on to give birth to three children of Willie's in Vancouver. Two sons, uh, George William and Frank Stephen, and one daughter, Margaret Ada. Uh, Willie worked like a variety of different jobs while Annie built a business breeding Pomeranian dogs. 
as well as she did like other work with pets. But I mean, when, if you have a vet as a husband and you can, the vet care is cheap, why not breed a somewhat expensive designer dog at the time? Yeah, the vet would have been her father at the time and she was kind of oh, like sorry. helping with yeah. the vet business. So she would have had definitely experience working with animals. Willie was like, for lack of a better term, pretty useless um, his whole life. Yeah. So he kind of just like did whatever he could, like did whatever jobs he could hold down while she was kind of like building this business. You get that. His addiction got out of control, though, to the point where he was starting to spend all of the family's money on drugs and alcohol, and they weren't able to pay their rent anymore and feed their children, and Annie decided that the only way to save their family and Willie was to move him away from Vancouver, away from all the temptations that exist there, Um, because, like, not only, of course, was his addiction hitting them hard financially, but we know how addiction affects personal family life affects the people around you well, um, I think and she, being just a couple with kids like she's trying to hide it and keep it together from the kids too so it's like she's like in the middle trying to be like oh shit and well like and it's a completely it. different time too like we yeah. well, we have to think this is the early 1900s there's no cell phones there's no like drug rehab people were like just stop just don't do it exactly. anymore. Exactly. Like, it's just not stop that easy. Doing that. Like, just stop go buying it. Exactly. Well, just, it's cold turkey. Just don't do it anymore. You don't need it. Yeah. Just stop doing it. And it's like, it's not that easy. Yeah. We didn't and so understand. The other reason that she knew she had to do something was that um, <laughs> she was receiving, sorry, she was still receiving like monthly checks from. So Willie is from Scotland and. Okay. His family back in Glasgow was sending Woo, Annie and Willie basically a small monthly payment. Like allowance? To ensure that he would be, like, kept in line and not be an embarrassment to any of his kin. Oh. <laughs> so they basically paid her to, like, deal with him. Nanny him? And, like, keep him out of the streets. We don't want him embarrassing the family. So they hired his wife, essentially, Correct. is what to, they did after. To keep they were like, him oh, he's your problem now. Yeah. And then, like, sent oh her paychecks. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she Willie, was like, I got to do something. Be better. <laughs> I need these paychecks to keep coming. And if he fucks up, they're going to stop sending me money. In April of the year 1915, 27-year-old Annie, who was five months pregnant at the time, packed up their entire family, including Willie their three children, uh, and a cow named Bessie, who was gifted <laughs> gifted to them by her father for good luck, and they decided to relocate from Vancouver to what's called Hesquiet Harbor on the west coast of Vancouver Island. I mean, I guess if you wanted to keep them away from people and, like, not embarrass them, that's a great place. Yes. I mean, at, but the, like... at the time... This was all, well, quote-unquote, untouched land. We'll get to that. Um, And it was obviously, like, far away from civilization. There was nothing around. There was absolutely no way you could access. So she was pretty much like, do what you want now. Yeah, you couldn't access anything, I guess, unless you made it. Couldn't embarrass himself, Um, like, in front of a tree. Correct. Exactly. Tree doesn't care. In the middle of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the, so in the 20th century, the possibility of free land attracted 
many people to the island. Um, the Ray yeah. Arthur family was no exception to this. Like, it was obviously one of the reasons that they were attracted to come this direction when Annie was choosing to move them. When Annie and her family arrived in 1915, um, the land at the time's sovereignty uh, at this point had been assumed by the government of Canada. And so with the Hesquiet territory never having been signed any treaties, the government basically just was like, oh, this is ours now and then gave it away. Oh, my God. So Which, though, again, not the first time we're hearing that this happened. I mean, this is essentially how all land in Canada was acquired. Was like, this is the how Canada was acquired. The, the government, this is how this entire country was acquired. Yeah, the go- the government assumed sovereignty over the land, oh, which no means like, they just this? kind of like assumed it okay. as their own. Yeah. And then you don't they use gave it, it you away. lose it to the so, Canadian government. To the white people. Yeah. Um. So because of this, the family actually already had 116 acres, 116 acres of preempted land just waiting for them upon their arrival. Um, And what preempted land was, was essentially the land, the, the government would assume that it was loaned to you. So they would say like, here's 116 acres of land. You work on the land and we're going to come back in a few years and see what you've done with it. And if we Uh think that you're working it well enough, if we think that you have utilized the land to the best of its ability, then we are just going to grant it to you in the form of ownership for free. Yeah, so it's like prove to us that you deserve this land and you can handle it and we'll give it to you. Correct. So the Ray Arthurs, including their cow Bessie, Made their way over to Victoria from Vancouver. And then from there, they sailed the Canadian Pacific's Princess McQuinna steamer to the remote Hesquiet Harbor located 30 kilometers north of what we now know as Tofino, B.C. So it's like one of those little islands off Tofino. Mm -hmm. So cute. Once they arrived in Hesquiet, the family loaded their belongings into a cedar bark dugout canoe and paddled to Boat Basin at the head of the harbor, which is the nor- at the north end of Clayquo Sound. Sorry, I-, I know how to say that. I don't know why it was so difficult coming out. I thought it was Clayquos. Clayquo Sound. No. Clayquo Sound. Okay. Clayquo Sound. Uh, Now, just picture Bessie the cow is literally tied upside down in this canoe, like, wailing and screaming. The West Coast rain... Just imagine moving a cow in a canoe. Into a canoe. In general. Now, if you've ever been to Vancouver Island, you know that about 60% of our climate is just absolute pelting down sideways rain. Um... Especially in the, on the West Coast, like Tofino area, it's, it can be even worse. Like, people literally go there to go storm watching. So, so the rain used to do. is, like, coming down. The entire family with their cow is in this canoe just, like, paddling to this land that they don't even know what it's going to be when they get there. Drenched. And though it looked super rough, Annie just had this dream to build a flourishing garden and farm on the land and gain ownership of it. Like, that was her tunnel vision. She was focused on that. Yeah, get it, girl. 
So we're going to go a little bit into kind of like the, the First Nations status on the land at the time, just so like we kind of know where we are and who we stole the land from. Well, and like what is, where Annie is situated right now. Right, and where, where she's headed. Yeah. At the time of the family's arrival, 112 members of the Hesquiet First Nation lived in the area according to a 1915 census conducted by the Department of Indian Affairs. Censuses were happening in 1915. Yep. The Hesquiet First Nation is a First Nations band government that is a member of the Nuchanolf Tribal Council in Tofino, B.C. Hesquiet is the most northern and isolated of the five central region Nuchanolf nations. Only two of eight Hesquiet reserves are currently occupied by members, one at Hot Springs Cove, and the other at Hesquiet Harbor. Hot, hot Springs Cove is named after the natural hot springs that Katie was talking about, located at the south end of a narrow peninsula on the east side of the cove. The reserve community of Hot Springs Village is located on the cove's west side and is currently home to approximately 80 individuals and 25 families for a total of 39 dwellings. Every week, I think the town or dwelling count we talk about gets smaller and smaller. Legit. This is like a tiny, tiny town. And not even really a town. This is a tiny, like, community. Prior to the 19th century, the Hesquiet people were actually a congregation of five nations living around the Hesquiet Harbor with a total population of around six to 10,000 people. Each nation was governed by their respective hereditary system called Hawi. After the smallpox epidemic that settlers brought, the communities moved to one site at Hesquiet Village, but before being moved by the Department of Indian Affairs to the current site at what is called Hot Springs Cove. So this is why I say not ours. When the family arrived, they walked a short distance into the forest and found densely forested land with a small two-bedroom cabin on it. The cabin wasn't in great shape, but it was dry and it was theirs. I love that. I think it's just cute that they had something. And I know that yeah. feeling. Like, it's not great, but it's mine. And that that's all that matters. And it was like a fresh start, right? Like, they, they showed up and it was just like, this is... This is it. Um, so Annie's first priority was to clear enough land that she could start working on it. Like her, like her again, her tunnel vision to goal was this garden and farm that they could live off and she could really like, she was a businesswoman. She wanted to like build a business, generate income She's for hustling. the family. She knew Willie wasn't going to be. Hustling Cougar is what they call her. Yeah, like she, Willie wasn't the breadwinner, let's put it that way. Annie worked tirelessly and mostly alone. Willie didn't like doing physical labor to clear five acres of that land. And like five acres, this is really, really difficult, like rainforest land to work on. I think we're really familiar with the territory because we live here and we know what our forests are like. So the episode, I'm not kidding. This is just like perfect touch explain. The episode or the season of Alone that we just started is 
on Vancouver Island, like very far north, up above like Tofino, like way, way, way up okay. there. But it's like very dense, like wet vine-like leaves that don't grow straight either. They're very like tumbling over yes. one another with loops and a lot. We have a ton of fallen trees. Yeah. Like, and our terrain is super wet, mossy, slippery. Like, it's not easy to just plow through this. It's not like dry brush that's breaking and snapping and you can pull it down quickly. It's well, just not. Well, there was no power tools no. back then. She was doing this all by hand. It's and like a like handsaw and rocks. And, and help. Any, yeah. any single person that she even saw step foot on their land, she would rope them in to help her. Good. But yeah, like like Katie said, this was like extremely difficult land to work uh, with, being in some of like the densest rainforests in the world. Um, there's massive trees that need to be cleared, rocks and shrubs, and like yeah, she did it all. Uh, Father Augustine Brabant, who was a Roman Catholic missionary stationed at Hesquiet Village across the bay from the Ray Arthur Homestead, said of the land, quote. The coast is rugged and rocky, present in its entire extent, the appearance of desolation and barrenness. No clear land is to be seen anywhere, and no hopes can be entertained that the west coast of Vancouver Island will ever be available for agricultural settlements. Like, come on down. Yeah. Also, we have, like, the highest in, like, North America, like most black bear attacks happen on Vancouver Island. So that's also something to keep in mind is the population of bears and cougars where they're trying to set up. So like, thank God she clearly is good at hunting. The cougars specifically, the area was being like completely overrun by them. And we'll get to that. But um, Mm -hmm. she was tough, though. Like Annie was a tough chick. And with a bit of help, she did end up clearing those five acres Every single day, Annie would go out to work on the land, um, and she needed Willie's help, especially at the beginning. So to keep the kids safe, remember, she had three small kids. She would tie the youngest to a high chair, like just strap them onto a high chair, and then made a makeshift playpen that she would lock the other two kids in so that she could go out work for the day. If it means they're going to have a warm shelter come winter, you do what you have to do. Uh, Yeah, and as soon as the kids were old enough to basically, like, hold a bucket, like, five, six years old, they were out helping their mom. Yeah. Standing there helping hold the bucket, go dump it, whatever you can do. And like I said, Willie just wasn't much of an outdoorsman. He was also not well, but he did try his best to be helpful. Uh, And a lot of the time he was just, like, like, in the later years, he was really just, like, watching the kids and feeding them and doing his thing. Yeah, still helpful. Yeah. Um, but so like like we were saying, Annie had to not only take down all these gigantic trees, but she had to break them down. There was nothing mm-hmm. to just like pull them or whatever. So she ended up turning all the trees into firewood. She had plenty of bundles of firewood. She did all of this by hand. Like I said, she summoned literally anyone who stepped foot on the property to come help. There was no stump pullers or machines back in 1915. So it was all manual labor. Over the years, however, Annie did end up clearing the land and planting a huge garden and a farm, which was the main source of income throughout her entire life. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. So I mean, I saw the picture of the garden that it is now, so I can only imagine what she was doing when she was 
there working and hustling on it. So Yeah, so to her farm, remember they arrived with one cow. She added goats, chickens, and a few pigs. She first started off growing potatoes, all manners of squash and peas. The one thing that she knew about the land, even though, like, it obviously looked useless when you first looked at it, she knew that the soil was incredibly rich and that a lot of these things would absolutely thrive. So oh yeah, on the there's island, no chemicals that have been put in that soil ever, or like people that have been trekking over it. It's all just like new land, and all the soil is like rich with like moisture and all those plants and debris that are broken down over yeah, the years. Yeah, like so many. Oh yeah, minerals and plant yeah. vitamins, whatever. But on Vancouver Island, if you live here, or you've been here, you know we have a lot of shrubs, a lot of like berries. So. Mm-hmm. She brought in more shrubs, raspberry bushes, blueberries, blackberries. She knew that they th- they thrived on the island. Um, this is where she is very, like, business savvy and clever. Okay. Annie then started writing letters to gardens and nurseries all across BC, and she would receive back all types of seeds by mail. And mm. this is what she would use to bring her garden to life. She would get mail returned mm. to her with, like, daffodils, irises, tulips, dahlias. Um, By the 1940s, Annie had actually grown the largest dahlia garden ever with over 200 varieties. Whoa. And her main goal now was to sell bulbs and seeds from Annie's garden. Yeah, that's a great turnaround. Yeah, and so not only was she writing and receiving bulbs now and seeds from BC, but she was getting them from all over the world, like Australia, the UK, so everybody. So she's now bringing in like specialty and yes, um, like tropical plants and stuff. And for people who don't know, like we are technically a type of rainforest. So like we can actually grow some pretty crazy things here. Yes. If you just take good care of it. Good Food is Canada's number one meal kit service that delivers right to your door. Good Food makes cooking fun, easy, and affordable. They offer different meal plans to fit your needs like vegetarian, clean 15, easy prep, and the most popular basket, the classic basket. Every recipe is packed with fresh produce that comes directly from farmers and with Good Food, you can skip the trip to the grocery store and have everything you need to make your curated meals delivered straight to your door. Sign up for Good Food today using the code FREEPODCASTBYPROXY to get your first classic box for free. That's free podcast by proxy when creating your good food account to get a classic box on us. On July 26, 2018, Dustin Duffy murdered my 24-year-old niece, Taylor. Six days later, he killed his own parents and the family dog. I'm Kim, host of A Million Other Choices. Yes, another true crime podcast. After Taylor's murder, I have learned that telling victim stories in a respectful way is therapeutic for me and helpful for others. I try to identify red flags. After all, everyone you know is capable of murdering you. Join me each Monday for a less known case on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you are listening right now. Yes, we are a miniature rainforest, like a real-life one, Yep. which is cool. I've always found that cool, that we literally live in the middle of a rainforest. I don't know. I know. I love it. Because it seems like a novelty, you know? It does. we live here. For sure. Yeah. 
So in the first six years on the land, Annie cleared a full five acres, and by 1921, she had 10 fruit trees, three of them fruit-bearing, a full acre of potatoes, a full acre of mixed produce, and two and a half acres of grown-in grass. She had a total of 19 goats, 100 chickens, and by 1921, she had one pig left. She sold eggs, had a successful nursery, and she also started her own mail-out nursery where she would sell plants and bulbs by mail. Cute. Right? She was like the first Amazon Prime. She was, like her first plant Amazon Prime. Mm Mm-hmm. Her garden had more than 100 varieties of flowers, shrubs, and trees. Uh, And she actually eventually operated and, like, opened and operated a general store and a post office, all from her land, and, like, convinced the government to let her become the postmistress for the area. (laughs) So they paid her a salary. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I guess, yeah, they didn't really have a postmaster out there, so... When she's like, yo, I'll do it. And, like, yeah. if she has, like, bees and has, like, honey on her farm and she has these flowers and she's has other people cooking and baking, having a little store would be totally doable. Yeah, and I, I think I go into it more in depth, but just because we're on the topic right now, I'll just bring it up now. <laughs> um, so she ran the, the general store and the post office out of the house that she built after, like, Mm-hmm. Eventually, they were able to upgrade the home on the land, um, so it was a lot bigger, and she made one of the rooms in the house, the post office and the general store. Oh, okay. So this is where she would sell, like, eggs, and she would bring in, you know, goods, because there was no real store on Yeah, but if you can buy all your, island. like, fresh produce there and eggs and stuff, that's yeah. amazing. Another source of income for Annie uh, was actually one of the ways that she earned her famous moniker. So, like I said, uh, at the time, this area was incredibly overrun by cougars. And so the government was actually offering a bounty to shoot cougars. And the bounty ranged between $10 and $40 per kill. Whoa, that's a lot of money back then. Yes. Sorry, what year is this? In the 1920s, 1900s. Yeah. That's crazy. So Here I come. The number of cougars that Annie claims to have killed continued to increase in her old age. However, she claimed in 1955 to have received government bounties for 10 cougars and survived two cougar attacks. Over the years, it was thought that she killed upwards of 70 cougars and 80 bears in her lifetime. So, like Katie said, black bears and cougars would have been um, especially plentiful at this point because it was long ago. Um, one source said that the last count was 116 cougars. So, the number is definitely all over the map depending on kind of like what research you're looking at. But it's definitely up there in the numbers of how many cougars she killed. But if she was, like, for example, if she was getting the $40 per because, like, she was doing it all the time and she was consistent, maybe she was reliable, she was getting $600 per cougar. 
Yeah, she wasn't, she didn't even start off doing it for the bounty. Like, Annie herself said that she didn't actually enjoy killing animals, but at first she started killing cougars in self-defense and if they threatened yeah, her, her livelihood on the farm. No, her not her kids, her animals. Like, um, I guess so, yeah. I can because, make more kids. <laughs> because there was a couple times where, like, she would come out and a cougar had attacked all her goats and stuff like yeah, that. Pick and off she, your had, she knew she had a good aim and she had a gun, so she would kill them. But her shooting reputation and aim led people to actually recruit her for these bounties. And mm-hmm. that's how it became a way that she earned extra money. So she didn't start off killing cougars for money. She started off killing them to protect her farm. And then people were like, damn, girl, you're good at that. We're going to yeah. use your services elsewhere. Correct. Okay. But protecting her livestock, like her goats and her chickens, was always her top priority. So many of the animals that she killed were those that were... It was like part of her day's work, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad, but yeah, it is what it is. A reporter from the Vancouver Sun actually said that Annie offered hunting advice like she would offer a cookie recipe, which I originally <laughs> enjoyed that quote. Between 1915 when they arrived and 1931, Annie gave birth to eight more children. Well, I did just say she could make more kids. Yeah, five of these children, uh, Isabel Agnes, Rosina Boyd, Helen Buchanan, Thomas Jordan, and Lawrence Robert all survived. Three of the, the children, including Marjorie Elizabeth, a baby named Agnes, and an unnamed female child, did not survive infancy and were all buried on the farm. Wait, did she have a child named Agnes that did survive, though? No. Oh, Margaret. Okay. okay. I thought she had an Agnes that passed. Oh, well, and... she had a daughter that did survive, Isabel Agnes. Agnes was okay, her middle so name. Just... Okay. I just just, thought she was like, oh, well, that one didn't make it, so I'll just name the next one Agnes. That's what I thought for a second. I was like, whoa, that's She just reused a name. Maybe it was a family name. I don't know. Maybe. So by the age of 43, Annie had given birth to 11 children, eight of whom survived to adulthood, and she called the three children who did not survive her garden angels. And like I said, they were all buried on garden grounds. Poor babies. Yeah. Willie didn't enjoy manual labor at all, uh, but he was able to watch the kids and wash dishes while Annie took care of all of her businesses and provided for the family. To not be able to do manual labor, but be able to watch like a football team worth of children or like a kindergarten class. I don't know. And I feel like watch is maybe a loose term because it was was there. Yeah, it was said that like Annie's kids were pretty frequently seen just like running around. Well, it sounds like they were also working a lot, so they were all just, like, probably doing fun little projects all over the property. Yeah, there was one of her children, specifically Thomas, who Mm -hmm. she ended up calling Tommy, uh, was really involved in, like, the farm and the general store and all that stuff. Most of her kids wanted nothing to do with it and, like, left the land as soon as they were able to. They just, like, Mm -hmm. wanted to go to town. They were over-living in the the middle of nowhere. Um. But Tommy specifically was very involved with, like, helping her with the store hmm. and, um, like, the postal service. Man loves mail. <laughs> Sorry. Annie's garden began to thrive. Uh, by the early 20s, like I said, it had more than 100 varieties of flowers, shrubs, and trees. 
The garden was visited by locals as well as tourists every single summer. She sold eggs, although it was said that she, like, deliberately sold rotten eggs sometimes. <laughs> like, she would, like, deliberately sell the bad ones. I don't know why. But... Like, to certain people or just in general? No, just in general. Like, oh. they were sometimes fresh. Uh, rotten egg Annie. Okay. Yeah. So she sold sometimes fresh eggs, had a successful nursery, the mail-out nursery. She had clients in Victoria, Nanaimo, all across Canada, People would start writing to her, as she had done in the past, from all over the world. Oh, like getting her seeds now? To get her seeds. She would get letters from all over the world. People wanted her seeds. Like I mentioned, her son Tommy specifically was extremely helpful and did all of the mail correspondence, um, Mm -hmm. while the girls helped with crating and packing all the bulbs and seeds. So... To operate a mail-out business back in the 1920s, what you had to do was, like, package everything up and then Mm -hmm. put it all into big crates. And then you actually had to boat all the crates over to drop them off at the steamer, which would then go out for delivery. So it was, like, quite an involved process to actually mail out all these bulbs and seeds. But, like you said, she had all her kids working, so... My grandparents used to be lighthouse keepers. We know what it's like to prepare to be, like, trapped somewhere or do weird things to coordinate stuff. It's I get it. Yeah. In 1923, an agent from the government arrived to visit the Ray Arthur homestead and assess how they were utilizing their government loan land. The government was incredibly impressed with all the work that Annie had done to clear the land and create all these businesses and be the I bet they showed up and they were like good job Willie yeah (laughs) no so they did Um, that is exactly what they did they were just like very impressed with all the work that had been done and they granted the family a freehold title for the land to Willie In 1923, a married woman could not own land on paper. So the freehold title was in Willie's name. However, Annie was just happy that the land now belonged to their family. It's true. I mean, it's it's their land still. Didn't really care, yeah. Clearly she wears the pants in this relationship anyway. Yeah. Now, at this point, um, 1923, like when the government like loaned them the land or freeholded them the land um the general store and stuff wasn't up and running yet it was just like the mail out um plants and bulbs and like the, the one room farm kind of and everything she had. like she did have far a farm business like eggs and stuff going but now that she had some income from the farm and the cougars um they owned the land with a small loan from her father this is when she starts building a new larger home for the family this house had four bedrooms a wraparound porch a small attic and this is when she converts one of the bedrooms into a general store and eventually a post office in 1926. The store was called the Boat Basin Store, and originally they sold milk, eggs, and cigarettes. Or cigarettes. That's the big one. Milk, eggs, and cigarettes. Hesquia people, loggers, fishermen, and tourists uh, all would come visit the store every summer. And like I mentioned before, she eventually convinced the government to allow her to add a post office component to the store became postmistress for the government and they paid her a salary Post-mistress. for this. Postmistress. Postmistress. I think that's so funny. 
Yes. I like how ma- the men get post-master and women get post-mistress. It's yeah. like, what happened there? Well, and it's just like what we said with, like, she did literally all the work to that land to make it usable. And they were and like, really go, got the land title because she is <sighs> so a female annoying. and wasn't allowed to own anything. Cool, cool, cool. Pish posh. Why would a girl need land? Yeah. So now they've done really well at this... At at this farm, I mean, she has really transformed this into a home and a life for them. In 1936, tragedy struck. Willie Ray Arthur died after drowning in the harbor in a boating accident at the age of 63. So this was a pretty big hit to Annie in terms of she lost her help. <laughs> yeah, she's like, she I lost was, my daycare. <laughs> She lost her and an able-bodied like, man. She really relied on what Willie was doing in order to be able to run her farm and her store and like live her livelihood. Again, this woman has like fourteen children. Yeah, she needs some help. Hold After... on, my cat is just getting into like freaking everything. I want to punch her. Oh, do you want me to? P.S. People, I don't really punch my cat. What? Do you want me to wait a minute while you deal with her? Yeah, of course, we go to record and somehow she finds a piece of tissue paper and a receipt. Here, Wednesday, you can have it all balled up. We're good. After Willie died, people kind of expected Annie to, like, take her kids and go back to Vancouver or like hell no look at that land she's got right and she's invested a lot of time energy money her, her life, life into like this land and it actually also sounds like she was really enjoying living on the land and enjoying what she had built for herself but again she did need help now that Willie was gone um the livelihood she had created for herself including the homestead the farm the gardens really relied on support from Willie so Annie began her search for a new husband. <laughs> I need a new child care instead of hands on this land. Yeah. Now, as you can imagine, without Tinder, it was a bit difficult finding a spouse in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, so she's not in Vancouver anymore. Annie decided to advertise what she was looking for in farming and uh, magazines and newspapers. So this is, she's, okay, so not only did she break ground with the first Amazon. Yeah. She is now the first personals ad. Uh, essentially, yeah. The ad Damn read, girl. quote, BC widow with nursery and orchard wishes partner. Widow preferred object matrimony. you want another widow it's so bold and beautiful i just love it and she put it in a farming magazine in like winnipeg oh yeah you gotta make sure you're like well she doesn't it saves on words if she puts it in the right area yeah she doesn't have to emphasize the farm too much yeah so yeah the expectation was that she would find somebody who would help her run her businesses and take care of the handsome farmer was just gonna come forward and be like i'm here yeah, well, that was in 19, what, 1936, Willie died. Then she puts out the ad. In 1940. <coughs> oh, that's not too bad. I thought it would be longer than that in this day and age. Yeah, in 1940, Annie met and married her second husband, George Campbell. 
This marriage lasted until 1944 when George died of an accidental gunshot wound to the leg. Annie's version of the story was that there was a rifle that was always kept loaded on the wall for obvious reasons. And one night... Cougars. Yeah, obviously, so she could grab it and go shoot a cougar if she needs to. Uh, One night, she says there was a terrible storm, the whole house was shaking, and the rifle fell off the wall, and when it hit the floor, it fired, hitting George in the leg, who then died. (laughs) Yeah. The RCMP did come out and question Annie. However, no charges were ever laid. Um, There were rumors circulating among locals that Annie had shot George, and that it was not an accidental misfire. However, there were no direct eyewitnesses. There was never ev- any evidence of You're this. You're kidding, there's and 40 children in this house. Nobody saw a thing. That's all I can find on that. Just that there was, like, rumors around town that she had shot him. She said it was accidental and that the gun this fell This is like the that wall. thing where, you know, like, that guy gets shot in his car and nobody in town will say who did it. No, but that sounds oh, terrifying. Okay. okay, never mind. We'll talk about that another day. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so there's no evidence to prove this. Like I said, the RCMP came out and questioned her. No charges. Um, that's about as true crimey as we get in this episode. <laughs> that was your true crime blip for the episode. Blip. <laughs> After George died, Annie put another ad in the newspaper. That um, worked once. <laughs> yeah, so the paper that she's putting an ad in or the magazine is called The Western Producer. Uh, this is when she meets her third husband, Esau Arnold in 1947. Esau? Esau. E-S-A-U. Cool. Yeah. This husband lasted until 1955 when he died of pneumonia. After this, Annie puts out yet another advertisement (laughs) in the newspaper. Come on down! And in 1961, sorry, she married her fourth and final husband, George Lawson. Can we just have a reminder of how many names this lady has at this point? Because her name, I was giggling at the beginning when it was like six names long. Ada, Annie, Jordan, Ray, Arthur, Campbell, Arnold, Lawson. (laughs) (laughs) If we're just going to string them together. Like, lady, you start dropping a few at a time. Like, I'm sure she did. Because I think when you look at some research, it says like her last name was Ada Annie Lawson. Although George Lawson was a terrible man. He was a very bad partner. Uh, he was a drunk and he became abusive and like tried to push Annie off a cliff to take ownership of the land. But he ta- <laughs> Annie chased him away with a shotgun and he knew that she wasn't kidding and that she wouldn't miss and he just never came back. Don't make me treat you like them cougars as she's running after him with a Legit. shotgun. And he just like peaced out and never returned. Can you imagine? Like, I'm going to guess I'm divorced now. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So that was her last attempt at a husband. Um, like I said earlier, her children left the land for town as soon as they could, except for Tommy, who did stay longer to help his mom run the property's various businesses. Annie rarely left the property at all, and after her fourth husband left, um, like after George, she ran George off the property, she no longer had any children living at the property, and she lived there alone until 1983, when she was 95 years old. 
What about the one son? Because you said he stuck around, though. But did he, he did eventually, eventually like, like, move on? Had a wife life. and kid, like, yeah. got a life. Yeah, he did. He eventually moved on. He was just the last one who, like, stayed a bit longer to help her, but he eventually moved on. He was on the mama's well. boy. It's fine. Yeah. You gotta have one when you have that many kids. Right? One of them has to like you. Literally. She eventually, Annie eventually became older and unable to care for herself as well as mostly blind. And in 1983, she moved, she was moved to Port Alberni where she died on April 28th, 1985 at the age of 97. Her ashes were, yeah, her ashes were returned to her garden. Good. Yes. Now we're not done. No, no, no. I think we were. Before she passed... Annie met an investment banker from Vancouver, B.C., who had been passing through the area in search of opportunities on the West Coast. So it's just like this investment banker dude who was like coming to this area. He's heard that it's plentiful. There's lots of opportunities there. He's hoping to capitalize on the area's abandoned mineral claims. His name was Peter Buckland. And his first visit to Annie's garden was in 1968 to purchase some eggs. He noted that Annie was very much a, quote, determined, manipulative, and tough lady. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's not exactly a quality you want someone to say the first time they meet you. Well, <laughs> Over like an kinda, egg deal. <laughs> I feel like we got, we got that vibe from Annie from the beginning, though, right? Yeah, she's I mean, pretty, the fact she's that she's looking for husbands. Like, you have to be a certain way to, to pull this off. Uh, you mean she has to act like a man? No, I just mean you have to be, have, like, a certain okay. level of, like, tenacity and, like... Yeah. Willingness to not give up and, like, I don't know. She's gonna hustle for those That can make deals. some people think you're manipulative when you just won't take no for an answer, right? Yeah. Over the next 19 years, Peter made monthly visits to Boat Basin and developed a very special relationship with Annie and the land. He actually likes to joke that he thinks if Annie had been a few years younger and he a few older, <laughs> that Annie might have made him her fifth husband. <laughs> Peter purchased the land in 1981 at Annie's request and decided to move there to restore it in 1987. He actually left his job as a stockbroker in Vancouver and set out to preserve the garden and Annie's legacy. We love him. Right? Um, Annie had left in 1983, so, like, four full years had gone by for to allow the rainforest. And so, like, had no one been, like, caring for it during that time? So it was overgrown and just, like, really yeah, run. so the rainforest was back in full effect, and it took Peter nearly 16 years to <gasps> cut back and shape the garden into, like, what it is now which is like a so maze like very, of moth very... covered pathways that you can still visit yeah. today he because estimates you're waiting a whole spent... year for something to grow back in right to be able to like create the vision you want yeah and i think that he didn't just restore it back to what it was i think he restored a lot more of the land like it's again it's like these pathways and so stuff. he made so it more I... like a memorial garden that you can visit rather than just hers was for like profit and yeah. functional like yeah you just made okay. it like more of a visiting kind Aww. of a place than something that needed to be like worked on shit he estimates that he spent thirty-three thousand hours laboring to create the facilities that we now have access to on annie's property 
Peter eventually created the nonprofit um, called the Boat Basin Foundation in 1998 to manage the garden. The foundation was established to own the property through donations and preserve it for future generations as well as the foundation would work to encourage education about the natural and cultural history of the area. The goal of the organization was to, quote, preserve the garden for future generations and to promote interest and education in cultural and natural history. This nonprofit built, uh, was built and opened in 2007. Sorry, this nonprofit built and opened in 2007 the Temperate Rainforest Field Study Center on a ridge overlooking the garden in partnership with Ecotrust Canada and the Hesquiet First Nation. It was envisioned as like an eco-retreat for university students and private groups. Um, the center has six off-grid cabins that were built with cedar harvested on site. Wow. Cool, hey? Because those are some old growth trees out there. Yep. In the center is a, in the center of these six cabins is like a longhouse inspired communal kitchen building and a dining building that overlooks the forest, the garden, and the ocean below. Amazing. Accommodation at the center is open to visitors, but the foundation's website cautions that visitors should be highly motivated, reasonably physically fit, and independent as like, it's still really tough terrain. Mm -hmm. You can arrange day trips or weekend trips from Tofino through the foundation. Um, yeah, so it was day trips or if you want to do overnights and stay in those little cabins, you have to go for right. at least two nights. And you have to have four people. At least four people. So, so we could go for two nights with four people. Yeah. Now, in August of 2010, the property was listed for sale for $2.2 <gasps> million by Landquest Realty. The study center was found to not be financially viable and the sale was deemed necessary to pay off a sizable debt that had been incurred by the center. It actually oh. lost $1.9 million between when it opened in 2007 and the time the property was put up for sale in 2010, which is a lot of money. Jeez, that's a short window of time too. Yeah. At the time, however, Hesquiat First Nations chief Joseph Tom said the band was heavily opposed to the sale of the land and that they were actually looking into taking legal action to block any proposed sale. I don't the blame them. Well, and so... Like, this, why wasn't it offered back to them first? Right. So, essentially what the chief said was, at some point, the Hasquia people have to ask, how is it you can sell our property without consulting us or accommodating us in any way? There's no treaty in Hesquiet. Cougar Annie's was given away without our permission, and now Ecotrust wants $2.2 million, and what did we get in the beginning? Absolutely nothing. So if you remember, yeah. the Crown had assumed sovereignty of the Hesquiet land by the time Annie and Willie moved there, mm -hmm. and they received that Crown land grant under the Homesteading Act of BC for the 117-acre property when they arrived. This... This right here is a perfect example of what it means when you hear people say the term land back. I feel like it's often that we don't understand what that means. And it, this is exactly it. Land was taken from indigenous people for absolutely nothing 
assumed as government property, then given to colonizers for free, and for thousands of years now, colonizers have been making money off of this land while indigenous people get nothing. And giving nothing back. They get absolutely nothing. They don't even get clean fucking water. No. So this is this. I just thought that this case specifically was a really good example of just showing what that term really means because I mm-hmm. think that the term land back can get really like lost and a lot of us don't oh, actually yeah. know what that means and how land was taken from indigenous people and like this is a perfect. I was gonna say I think example. some people are even confused when they say like the land was stolen and yeah, like, like well, what how does do that steal mean? Land? It means like... that they lived there and the the. Colonized gov- colonial government came in and said, that's actually mine. We're going to give it away and then we're going to profit off of it. Yeah. And oh, by the way, you get nothing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, you weren't using it, so we're going to. It's ours now. Yeah. Well, and it's not like they weren't using it. Like, like that. Are... I just mean Annie's like chunk right. of land was undeveloped and they're like, well, nothing's happening right. here. So we're just going to take any amount of acreage we want. But by and then, then the Hesquit people had not only been killed off by settlers due to yeah. the smallpox epidemic, they had also been forcefully moved to only reside Going at one location areas. on the island, yeah. which was Hot Springs Cove. Yeah. Yeah. The Hesquit people have been in treaty nego- negotiations for decades, and they are incredibly frustrated by the province's refusal to include Cougar Annie's property in any future settlement. Husqvarna councillor Carol Ann Hilton said band members respect Cougar Annie's legacy, but pointed out that First Nations history in the area runs much deeper. They said, quote, it's a culturally significant place, a very magical place, but the history of Cougar Annie is only the last 100 years. We've been here for thousands of years. Mm hmm. The sale of Cougar Annie's garden was eventually halted and the foundation was able to reopen the garden in a more profitable manner by opening seasonally to paid visitors as they have it now. The garden is now open seasonally to the public. It's open for, like I said, day use or two-day trip uh, trips on limited days. It is accessible by float plane from Tofino, BC um, or by the water taxi. You can walk the split cedar boardwalk through an ancient rainforest. There is even a 1,200-year-old cedar tree there. Um, Hesquiet is also one of the only sites in North America that conclusively shows signs of human activity before the arrival of Europeans to North America. There is, like, few sites in North America that still actually show this sign of human activity, and this is one of them. So cool. I got like really goosebumps. cool. Cougar cool. Annie's Garden is now considered one of the oldest rural gardens in British Columbia and is a treasured heritage site. And that, my friends, is our one or two year episode, our two year anniversary episode, <laughs> holiday special of Cougar Annie. Honestly, the garden looks phenomenal in the pictures. And like what you were just saying about those cedar boardwalks, like the walkways through there look incredible. And, like, all the cool, like, woodwork that's done through it with, like, the cedar planks and stuff. It looks super neat. The history of the whole area is so cool to me. And after doing, like, so much research on the Hesquia people and, you know, their history with the land. Like, not only Cougar Annie, but just I was so fascinated by all of it that, like, I have to go. <laughs> now I have to go. Oh, yeah. And I think that you and I both have, like, been to Tofino 
so much in our lives and love yeah. it that now it's just like, oh my God, there's something new to explore out there. Yeah, Let's interestingly enough, like I've lived on the island my whole life, but I only really started going to Tofino in the last like five years. Oh, I went when I was younger, but my mom is like a really avid storm watcher. So yeah. we used to go in storm season. Yeah, I had never really gone. It wasn't something that yeah. we did as a family. I remember going to Yuki like once as a kid with my friend, but we weren't even there for that long because it was like pissing rain. Yeah. I don't remember much about it at all. Um, I went to Yuki as a teenager because my friend moved there in the summer, like in high school. But other than but that... We would like take my friend's camper and like her parents would take us to Tofino or Yukulit for like a week and we'd go no. surfing and we'd be on the beach and we'd camp and it was like... I've gone quite frequently in the last, say, like, five to six years. Like, again, I, I was just there. I went in yeah, the and, like, I, I'm there pretty often now. But, yeah, it's interesting that I live, I've lived on the island my whole life. Um, not far from Tofino, either. Like, I was going to say, you're never that far, really, never either. Never that far. Uh, and I hadn't really been there a lot until recently, so. But I love it. Tofino's gorgeous. Um, if you're going to go to Tofino, if you're going to visit Tofino, be very uh, mindful of the land mm -hmm. that you're on and respectful of it. There's been a lot of issues in the last few years of people coming in and camping for free leaving on garbage. the beaches and leaving all of their garbage and just a And mess. having fires where you shouldn't as well is a big one there. Like don't go into the woods and start a fire. I know well, it seems like such a simple thing, yeah. but just be mindful of where you're setting up a fire or do it appropriately. Just because I think there's a lot of recklessness. Yeah, a lot of a lot of those places, the First Nations bands don't want people camping there anymore because mm -hmm. of the mess that tourists have left. Um, so if you're going to visit anywhere, I mean, I don't really agree with littering and treating the land ever poorly, but if you're going to visit Tofino, just like, outside. please remember the sacred land that you are on and treat it as such. Mm -hmm. um, Tofino has some of the most historic, like, old growth trees. They have the cleanest water. They have some, like, the most you sacred land. You can feel the air difference when you're there. You can it's taste clean. the water difference it's... just right out of the taps. Oh, it's so, amazing. Yeah. Just treat it as you would paradise a glass ball of beautifulness i don't know treat it like an egg just please be it's nice delicate to it. and fragile but yeah that's uh that's cougar annie's story i had so much fun researching this and writing it thank <laughs> you so much simon uh we'll be back on our true crime shenanigans i'm sure soon but this was a much needed change up in our and watch content. for our vote for a redo episode because that'll be up in i would say i think we did it last night or last year for the first week we left it kind of to see and so we'll have to put our thinking caps on and see which episodes we're thinking yeah absolutely well uh, we'll throw up a vote but make sure you vote on that because that'll be coming in the next few weeks i'll usually do my research and writing within like the week or two that um put mm -hmm. that up so yeah, that's it. Thank it. you so, so, so much for all the support over the last two years. We're so excited for year three. We have so much cool stuff coming. Big so changes much. for us coming and uh, just so thankful. So thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.